Instead of getting drowsier, she was getting more awake with an odd nighttime dreamish kind of wakefulness. The creek was growing brighter. She knew now that the moon was on it, though she couldn't see the moon. And now she began to feel that the whole forest was coming awake like herself. Hardly knowing why she did it, she got up quickly and walked a little distance away from there. This is lovely, said Lucy to herself. It was cool and fresh. Delicious smells were floating everywhere. Somewhere close by, she heard the twitter of a nightingale beginning to sing, then stopping, then beginning again. It was a little lighter ahead. She went toward the light and came to a place where there were fewer trees and whole patches of pools of moonlight. But the moonlight and the shadows so mixed that you could hardly be sure where anything was or what it was. At the same moment, the nightingale, satisfied at last with his tuning up, burst into full song. Lucy's eyes began to grow accustomed to the light, and she saw the trees that were nearest her more distinctly. A great longing for the old days when the trees could talk in Narnia came over her. She knew exactly how each of these trees would talk if only she could wake them, and what sort of human form it would put on. She looked at a silver birch. It would have a soft, showery voice and would look like a slender girl with hair blown all about her face and fond of dancing. She looked at the oak. He would be a wizened but hardy old man with a frizzled beard and warts on his face and hands and hair growing out of the warts. She looked at the beach under which she was standing. Ah, she would be the best of all. She would be a gracious goddess, smooth and stately, the lady of the wood. Oh, trees, 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 said Lucy, though she had not been intending to speak at all. Oh, trees, wake, wake, wake. Don't you remember it? Don't you remember me, dryads and hammond dryads? Come out, come to me. Though there was not a breath of wind, they all stirred about her. The rustling noise of the leaves was almost like words. The nightingale stopped singing as if to listen to Lucy. Lucy felt that at any moment she would begin to understand what the trees were trying to say. But the moment did not come. The rustling died away. The nightingale resumed its song. Even in the moonlight, the wood looked more ordinary again. Yet Lucy had the feeling, as you sometimes have when you're trying to remember a name or a date and almost get it, but it vanishes before you really do, that she had just missed something. As if she had spoken to the trees a split second too soon or a split second too late, or used all the right words except one, or put in one word, that was just wrong. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. All right, welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where a handful of Inklings enthusiasts read and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others. 
Megan couldn't be here because she's trying to start a forest creature rebellion in the woods. And Annika was going to come, but suddenly realized she left her torch in Narnia. But filling in for them today, we have a veritable army of Aslan besotted maenads and berserkers. I'm Chris Pipkin. You met our producer, Logan Huggins, last time. With us as well, though, we have Sophie Burkhart of the podcast Beneath the Willow Tree, where she muses on philosophy, theology, and literature. How are you doing, Sophie? Splendid, splendid. Wonderful, wonderful. And we also have author... Mez Bloom, who is known for having written the Katie Watson Mysteries in Time series and Churchill's Socks, which I highly recommend. She says she's been tremendously influenced as an author and human being by C.S. Lewis, but she can tell you all about that. How are you doing, Mez? I am tickled to be here, Chris. Wonderful, wonderful. And Logan, how are you? I am very well. I have my electric torch and I have rallied all the local woodland creatures and we are ready to start a war. Good, good. Good. So in other words, just a normal Tuesday afternoon. So That's yeah, right. we're doing great. That's right. Prince Caspian was C.S. Lewis's second book in his Chronicles of Narnia series, published in 1951. It was finished before he published The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, to my mind, both the most awkward Narnia book, but still a lot better than the movie. It has moments of brilliant beauty and insight, perhaps even more so than uh, than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What do you all think about this book in relation to the original? Do you like it more? Do you like it less than Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe? I think it depends on when I read it and, and the sweet spots that it hits. For me, sometimes it's, it is just a matter of where you are in life and sometimes certain scenes just reach out and grab you. So this one has has had very pertinent meaning for me at certain times. I don't think Prince Caspian is my favorite. It's probably my third favorite because I do rank them. Wow. Um, the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Magician's Nephew, I think it is my favorite. Okay. But um, I I love, I mean, I think the part that Mez read at the beginning is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Narnia books. And so I, I love the feeling of the trees coming back to life slowly but surely as Aslan news. Yeah, I am a big fan of Prince Caspian. It reminds me of like a second season of a TV show, if I can use a TV analogy. Like we've already got the setup. We know these characters. We don't have to spend too long introducing the world. We're in it. And now everyone's ready to go. We're hit the ground running again, so to speak. But I'm a big fan of Prince Caspian. I don't know if I would put it above Line of the Witch and Wardrobe because it is such a classic, but it's pretty highly rated up there. I, I enjoy it partly because there are so many moments where... And I think I think more so than a lot of his other books, although perhaps when I get to these other books in the podcast, I'll find moments like this in the other books as well. Uh, but there are so many there are so many moments where things just seem they seem as though they could be taking place on our world, um, especially with the, you know, the the four Pavinci kids. And there are so many moments when the sort of enchantment kind of intrudes in what seems like an ordinary sort of forest scene, like what we just read at the top or beach scene you know or, or going to ruins and suddenly realizing oh shoot this is the castle we used to rule from right moments like that that are really interesting um they're really sort of textured i feel like if it was a smoother book and if lewis like had quite figured out exactly what he was doing with narnia by this point it might not have been as full with of of these kinds of these kinds of moments. Last time, Logan and I talked about the first half of Prince Caspian, in which Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy find themselves in Narnia about a thousand years after the time they reigned as kings and queens. 
They learn from a dwarf named Trumpkin that unimaginative humans named Telmarines have colonized the former kingdom of talking beasts and driven the magical folk far underground, but that one of the Telmarines, their rightful king, Caspian, has gathered the old Narnians together under his banner and is fighting his usurping uncle Miraz in order to reclaim his throne and usher in a new age in which humans and magical folk can get along with each other. The four old kings uh, and queens think that that sounds like a pretty good plan. So after proving to the skeptical Trumpkin that they are indeed the ancient rulers of old, they set off to help Caspian. But first, they have a lot of wilderness to navigate. Mez and Sophie, did I leave anything out since you weren't part of the uh, conversation last time? Is there is there something else that's important to note as we move forward? I think maybe just the emphasis that you have on old stories and just since that plays such a pivotal role in when Caspian is growing up um, with his tutor and with his um, nurse as well and just how that ends up because throughout the course of the book it ends up shaping how these different characters are going to respond to Aslan and what what kind of role they're going to play. Yeah Lewis has a lot to say in this book much of it negative about education which is uh which, which is going to be a fun thing to talk about uh, mm-hmm. but but yeah definitely like tutors are good in, in Lewis's mind, classrooms, maybe not so good. Caspian seems to have gotten the right kind of education, right? And that's, that's, that's key and that's important from Dr. Cornelius, who ends up joining his rebellion. We talked a little bit about the weirdness for the Pevensi kids of going back to being young in a place where you kind of like grew into adulthood. And, and like ruled and had authority, right? As, as well as how this seems in some ways to like kind of be a sequel about writing sequels. The kids are sort of stumbling forward through the forest, trying to find out if this actually is Narnia and where the action actually is. We also talked about how the Bible, the Gospels and Acts could possibly map onto the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian. And how in the world two dwarves from two different tribes might have ended up living with a badger. Uh, Logan floated the idea that maybe it was Craigslist ad. We also talked about how this book has a lot of a lot of named characters, um, definitely more than in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mez, I think you mentioned something about the Telmarines. Yeah, I find it interesting that, you know, as Sophie said, we're living in this world of Narnia now where the old stories have been forgotten. And I feel like there's a dichotomy of characters that Lewis sets up and kind of lets us try on different worldviews. And some of those are simply of the mindset that it's all old wives tales. You know, the tales about Aslan and talking beasts is just something for children, a nursery, nursery story. But then you have those who I think are just trying to, who know the truth, who know the true history and are trying to suppress it and trying to kind of, for their own ends, keep keep that secret hidden. So I find that an interesting play where you kind of have, I guess, a representation of the modern materialist who just uh, takes everything as fact. And then you have those who are tampering with uh, a spirituality, but don't profess Christ. But we will get on to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. And I think it tracks in a weird way with the idea of how talking beasts come to be talking beasts versus non-talking beasts. Be- because I wonder if this is two distinct kinds of telmarines, um, you know, those who, for their own reasons, want to keep stories about the past quiet, and then those who simply don't know about it. And to what extent the actively suppressing that truth sort of shades into ignorance in a similar way to the to the way that the beasts you know can sort of become wild and then gradually turn into turn into dumb beasts but yeah I, that might be 
completely wrong. And there might actually be like, you know, Trumpkin versus the Telmarines. Trumpkin really does seem honestly to not believe all this old stuff about, right, um, right. about, about Aslan. An honest doubter versus a sort of, yeah, an underhanded, because we get from, from Dr. Cornelius that that information, those old stories are incredibly dangerous. So there's clearly more going on than just, oh, these are for the nursery. It's profoundly important and dangerous information to have. So we'll go ahead, we'll pick up on uh, chapter nine, uh, what Lucy saw. The children are tired after rowing to the mainland all day in the sun. Um, and Lucy wakes up in the middle of the night and after looking at the stars has this feeling that the trees really could wake up again. And this is something both the stars and the trees in this book really strike me as being hugely important um, as, as these things that are both still and dependable but also moving, especially at the right times, right? Um, and they, they seem to kind of come together for this moment of kairos, right? This moment of like, ah, now things are really going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love this scene in general because I think it's such a beautiful picture of what Lewis talks about so much, especially in Surprised by Joy, over the notion of like sin-soaked and this inexpressible longing that just sort of shoots through you. And I think Lucy has that moment here. I mean, Lewis is always alluding to George MacDonald. He calls him right, his master. And I know the beech tree in Fantasties plays this huge role of this protective woman. And so just sort of seeing the beech tree have that same sort of role here with Lucy was a little nod to him. And I think that could be, I mean, trees just play such an important role in all of this whole line of authors that you have throughout history. And so I think, I think Lewis is also sort of tapping in, into this long history of that. Yeah, absolutely. George MacDonald, all over this book in bigger and smaller ways. Absolutely. I think you really hit on something, Chris, when you talked about sort of the permanence of the stars and the trees. And I think the theme that Sophie really emphasized at the start of the old stories and the old ways, I feel like Lewis really uses these characters really of stars and of, of trees um, because they're old, because they've, they've outlived all of the other characters. They've seen the days of creation. They have memories. And of course, throughout Narnia, he makes a special kind of tribute to stars and trees as being more than just their material makeup. You know, we get in uh, Don Treader, the conversation about the star and Eustace says, well, it's in our country, it's just balls of burning gas and, and learns that that's what a star is made of, but not what a star is. And then finally, at the end of the, of the Chronicles, the, the stars come down and worship Aslan more or less. So I feel like you, yeah, you've hit on something there where these trees and these stars have preserved the truth and they continue like in scripture, you know, how the, the stones will cry out when man fails to praise, praise God, the trees and the stars are still there worshiping for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Yeah, I love the the fact that they are that they are old. That there are other ways to know the past, right? Um, and and especially in a world where like parts of creation can just kind of like talk to you about about as or or like you could summon a king from like a thousand years ago, you know, who's a little schoolchild. To jump in real quick, yeah. I think it's 
I think you see this theme of Lewis holding up and sort of giving honor to nature in so many of his books. And so many characters have these almost sort of revelations with nature. You see it all throughout the Space Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy with Ransom as he gets to Malacandria, as he gets to Paralandra. There's these huge, beautiful passages of this overwhelming sense of awe that he sees of the created space, of, of these new planets, of Venus and then of Mars. It literally changes him because he's just so overwhelmed with the beauty and the purity and the majesty of nature. And as y'all were talking about the this scene here of Lucy experiencing the trees, it even in a weird way reminded me of that passage on Till We Have Faces about how Orwell, she's so close to having this revelation about the gods. She gets closest to sort of understanding the truth about the gods when she's opening herself up to how beautiful this nature scene is when she's going up the gray mountain. Why shouldn't my heart dance? I forgot, mm-hmm, I'm going to miss mm-hmm. it, but yeah, why yeah, not? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Then why, why shouldn't my heart dance when she's looking at this beautiful ravine and these beautiful flowers and the trees? And it's obviously she makes the choice not to do that, where we see Lucy choosing to jump in and join in the dance. And we see Ransom in his books joining the, the dance and joining the, the glory of nature there too. So Lewis uses nature to cause great changes and great transformations for his characters in so many of his books. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a re-enchantment. And this book very much deals with that, right? This book is very much about re-enchantment of, of the world, um, which is which is part of why those passages with Lucy are are so important, I think, um, is is you're, you're taking a world that seems to be in some ways bereft of magic and re-infusing it with, like, good Aslanic magic rather than bad werewolvian hags and witches and yeah we don't need any of those yeah and this might be jumping ahead a bit but while you're talking about re-enchantment i think that may be why lewis has a beef with education in this book i'm just thinking of um you know when he talks about men without chest and modern his day modern education how it's all about the disenchantment of the world of of the word just you know we can just explain things rationally so I feel like that's where he's kind of holding up this this re-enchanted world of the childlike vision, childlike faith with modern education, Freudianism, um, you know, the move to dry things out and rationalize everything. Maybe that that is a big reason why uh, schools get such a bad beef <laughs> in Prince Caspian. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny because his his tutor, the great knock, was definitely of that stripe it seems like right he's he's an atheist and ready to reduce things and be very precise in his arguments right at, at least as far as surprised by joy says but but yeah i mean i think you're i think you're right this is this is the tendency of modern education um, and, and it totally tracks with the abolition of man um, absolutely so that in order for man to not be abolished these other things that seem to rival man must be restored because otherwise you're not ruling over anything right you're mm-hmm. you're ruling over emptiness um, that makes you empty there's a fullness of humanity that comes when creation is re-enchanted so they get lost in the wood quite a few times in this chapter. They shoot a bear. Susan's about to shoot him, but she's worried, ah, shoot, what if it's a talking bear? And at that moment, Trumpkin, you know, lets an arrow fly. They have this little conversation uh, because Susan said, you know, I was, I was afraid it was a talking bear. And Trumpkin says, that's the trouble of it. When most of the beasts have gone enemy and gone dumb, but there are still some of the other kind left. You never know and you daren't wait to see. 
So at this point, at least, uh, this is interesting to me because the animals, rather than kind of having Aslan portion out some animals to be, oh, and you will be the talking beasts and you will be the dumb beasts. There seems to be like almost kind of a continuum rather than like a either or thing, like beasts can sort of become, which like tracks with a lot of the other stuff that Lewis has said about animals, right? Where like the tame condition of the animal is more in some ways preferable to the wild condition of an animal because because it's through human beings that creation that nature is is re redeemed right just as it's through christ that humanity is redeemed it made me think is is lewis dealing with two different explanations for why there are some animals that are talking and some animals that are dumb or is it pretty reconcilable with you know stuff that we see the magician's nephew later on where there's one set that's talking, one set that's dumb. And even at the end of Prince Caspian, he talks about how Reba Sheep and the mice used to not be talking mm -hmm. and they were given the gift of that through when they chewed off Aslan's cords when he was bound. So I would imagine it reconciles in that way that at any point Aslan could grant non-talking beasts the ability to talk and, yeah. and the notion of, of talking beasts being able to revert as well. Yeah, we're getting into like notions of soteriology and things like this. Like notice that the mice chewed Aslan's bonds first, right? So it's like a reward for something good that the mice did because they were more tame. Maybe, or maybe they just happen to be chewing on that bond and it's like kind of like a relic that like heals you or gives you powers or something like that. But it's, uh, actually that's a good point because Lewis isn't saying that a non-talking beast is a bad beast. He's just saying that it's a non it's not preferable. Like you're saying the tame beast is preferable, mm -hmm. but th that doesn't mean that a wild beast is a negative thing, but it has room to grow. So I guess it depends on the direction the beast is going. The mice were going in the right direction towards sentience, towards relationship with Aslan, whereas these beasts that we meet in Prince Caspian have presumably once been talking beasts, but have forgotten whether through that kind of inherited ignorance or willfully of their own sort of uh, rebellion. So it seems very much like a, a sense of, you know, the lion's breath has given life to all of these things, but they've removed themselves from, from the influence of the lion's breath so that they, yeah, they're, they're getting further and further from the relational quality that brings sentience to, to these talking creatures. Just to add on to that, totally, I think you can even say the same thing about the river spirits and the tree spirits themselves. Mm. They're not in their fulfillment of acting and dancing and doing this. It's through the sort of the oppression of the telemarines, the sort of forgetting of the old stories that they slowly become normal trees or the, the bridge sort of hampers the spirit of the river god or, you know, all these sort of mythical creatures and sort of like super creatures. They sort of revert back to their plain, boring terrestrial cells. It's definitely, I, I see it as sort of a, a product or a byproduct of that ignorance over time, or just sort of the influence of the telemarine sort of like uh, oppressing that true nature that Aslan is, and I guess Lewis designed Narnia to be. And isn't that the case for the humans in the story as well? The disenchanted humans who um, become, <laughs> there's some horrible <laughs> descriptions, but the stumpy fat-legged little girls, you know, and pinched face teachers as well yeah th that is i i am looking forward to talking about that chapter <laughs> all kinds of weird so one th one thing that lucy says that we probably don't have time to talk about because we need to get on to the to the next chapter you know lucy says kind of kind of touching what we've been talking about wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world at home men started going wild inside like the animals here and still looked like men so that you never know which were which i'm 
pretty sure directly from the sequel to George McDonald's Princess and the Goblin, The Princess and Curdie, where Curdie is given by kind of like that story's version of Aslan, who's like a old lady who seems young and old at the same time. He's given the ability to feel with his hands what sort of animal different humans that he meets are turning into when he like shakes their hands. It's, it's uh, and, and like they're sort of slowly turning into beasts um, in certain cities because of vice um, of different kinds and other people are slowly becoming better. But it's, it's interesting uh, because for, um, for George MacDonald, it's, it's a way of sort of picturing hell, even though George MacDonald doesn't exactly like think that hell is where anybody ends up in the end. Off of that, and I keep referencing the space trilogy, but it is my favorite. It, it reminds me of what you can sort of say about the villains in that hideous strength. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the sort of main villains, they're human, but they sort of get corrupted over time into sort of in different ways. One of them sort of becomes like a shell of a man, but he's very, very eloquent mm -hmm. and he's very mm -hmm. well talked, and he's just he'll sweep you off your feet. But then you stop and think like he's not saying anything. He's just an, yeah, literally yeah. an empty man. And there's this other character where at the end he's like his mind is screaming to like do something, get out get out but his body is just won't respond because he has been so beat down and sort of devolved into this shell of humanity because mm -hmm. he and with the evil side it, it, to oversimplify that awesome story but yeah it you see lewis do that time and time again you see that in the space trilogy where the bad guys devour themselves or are devoured by their own means and by their own forces essentially yeah and and if i could just put out a quick trailer for um later on in this season we're going to be talking about Sent into Hell by Charles Williams, um, which is very much part of the place where Lewis is getting um, some of these ideas of like, well, acts of kindness will continue to cause you to act kindly toward people, right? And draw you up toward heaven, right? Acts of selfishness isolate you more and more and more. And there's this just slow progress in one direction or regress in the other. Uh, is regress the right word? De degress? Ungress, I believe. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Let's go on to chapter 10, Return of the Lion. I think that this is where Lewis finds his muse and his muse is Aslan. Sort of figures out kind of what the book is about. Uh, I think it's the best chapter so far. There's too much to talk about all of it. Uh, basically, the Pavinci kids and Trumpkin continue their secular path and nearly get killed by arrows, realizing that Lucy was right because Lucy said, hey, I see Aslan over there and nobody else could. And she knew that Aslan wanted her to follow him and she did not. And uh, Lucy wakes up that, that night and lo and behold, the trees are awakened. Lucy looked very hard at the trees of that glade. Why, I do believe they're moving, she said to herself. They're walking about. She got up, her heart beating wildly, and walked towards them. There was certainly a noise in the glade, a noise such as trees make in a high wind, though there was no wind tonight. Yet it was not exactly an ordinary tree noise either. Lucy felt there was a tune in it, but she could not catch the tune any more than she had been able to catch the words when the trees had so nearly talked to her the night before but there was at least a lilt. She felt her own feet wanting to dance as she got nearer, and now there is no doubt that the trees were really moving, moving in and out through one another as if in a complicated country dance. 
And I suppose, thought Lucy, when trees dance, it must be a very, very country dance indeed. She was almost among them now. The first tree she looked at seemed to, at first glance to be not a tree at all, but a huge man with a shaggy beard and great bushes of hair. She was not frightened. She had seen such things before. But when she looked again, he was only a tree, though he was still moving. You couldn't see whether he had feet or roots, of course, because when trees move, they don't walk on the surface of the earth. They wade in it, as we do in water. The same thing happened with every tree she looked at. At one moment, they seemed to be the friendly, lovely giant and giantess forms which the tree people put on when some good magic has called them into full life. Next moment, they all looked like trees again. But when they looked like trees, it was like strangely human trees. And when they looked like people, it was like strangely branchy and leafy people. And all the time, that queer lilting, rustling, cool, merry noise. They are almost awake, not quite, said Lucy. She knew she herself was wide awake, wider than anyone usually is. She went fearlessly in among them, dancing herself as she leapt this way and that to avoid being run into by these huge partners. But she was only half interested in them. She wanted to get beyond them to something else. It was from beyond them that the dear voice had called. She soon got through them, half wondering whether she had been using her arms to push branches aside or take hands in a great chain with big dancers who stooped to reach her, for they were really a ring of trees around a central open place. She stepped out from among her shifting confusion of lovely lights and shadows. A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes with dark trees dancing all round it. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion. But Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether it was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. So finally, she gets to see Aslan. She kind of starts to talk to him about, well, you know, I saw you before in the woods, and I tried to talk my brothers and sister into following you, and they, they wouldn't believe me. They're also, and then from somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. You know, this sort of concept that Lucy could have followed Aslan on her own and been unafraid of how the others would react, right? Um, and, and, and it's interesting, uh, sort of keeping track of who is um, not blamed by Aslan, because that's the wrong word, but like kind of like sort of half rebuked by Aslan. He, he's a very like Socratic rebuker, right? Like he, he just kind of like looks at you after you say, oh, you don't mean this, I did this wrong. And, and oh shoot, I did this wrong. So yeah, it's just, it's just a lovely scene. Do y'all have thoughts? Definitely have thoughts. Yeah, a few, a few thoughts. Yeah, please. <laughs> well, I was just, I was thinking now, like we've talked about a little bit and I think it's so obvious throughout the whole story, how you have Aslan's breath sort of animating the world and giving life. And so I thought it was really interesting sort of honing in on that one sentence that you read where it says it's as if there was uh they were moving as if there was wind but there's no wind 
which is like, doesn't seem like that crazy big of a description, but understanding Aslan's breath, sort of connecting it to the notion of Ruach in the Bible and how it's God's spirit, his breath that's animating and giving life. And so you sort of see as Aslan gets closer and closer, the trees are feeling that Ruach and they're coming to life slowly but surely. And so I think that's really cool. And then again, like that whole notion of all these things being shot through with joy, we were just kind of giggling <laughs> over here as you were reading because it was just obvious how it kept mounting up and up and up until Lucy literally says, oh joy, because all of a sudden, all of these piercings that she's felt and experienced are revealed and there's Aslan. He's the one that's been waiting the whole time. Hmm. Yeah, and specifically when she's walking among the trees, but she wanted to get beyond them to something else. It was from beyond them that the dear voice had called. And yes. of course, in Surprised by Joy, it's that constant repetitious theme of every taste of joy is pointing at something beyond and experiencing that just gives you that hunger for the thing beyond. So we were just kind of laughing because this feels almost like the heart of of Lewis's own personal story, but also kind of his philosophy of joy, which is so central to everything that he writes. Yeah, and this is, as someone who writes fantasy and science fiction, right? Um, Lewis is very conscious of the fact that you don't have these sorts of myths that move people's hearts without God behind it, that it's not it's not the trees themselves. Like she, she longs for the trees to be alive, but that's because the trees are echoes of something in the character of God, or or manifestations, I guess, even is is um, a way to to view it. When the fuller manifestation is there, when the incarnate God incarnate in the form of a lion is there, then those things, while they still perform that function, they're not the main thing. I mean, the secular analogy I reach for is is Gatsby's green light um, after uh, after he's you know hung around Daisy. It's so striking, and I think it's it's such a um, it's it's such a theme throughout this Aslan being kind of the the thing to which all of this magic ultimately points, if it's good magic. Story wise, I think it's interesting that this is sort of a little precursor pre-taste of the party that's coming. And we'll see later that it turns into like a party caravan with all the trees and the animals are going wild and the girls are riding on the back and people are being sort of revived. And there's this great revival and great music and dancing and feasting and all this great, beautiful imagery of just a party. This little scene with Lucy, although it's so intimate and it's so sweet, it in itself is sort of like a little hint of where the story is going to end up, the, the big party at the end of the story. I mean, Lewis, is certainly if he doesn't quite know what's going to happen as he's writing this he has a really good mind for hinting at this sort of thing and then having a big um, like like you said a, a a real climax to these moments right a real uh, kind of fulfillment of of these kinds of promises that are that are being made Uh, so Lucy's really happy, you know, but um, but but then she realizes that she has to go back and wake up her brothers and sisters and tell them that they need to go right now. She wakes up Peter and Peter's like, oh, yeah, sure, Lucy. And then back to sleep. Wakes up Susan. Susan tells her to go back to sleep. She's being childish. Wakes up Edmund and Edmund has very thoroughly learned his lesson in the last book. He shakes himself awake and grumbles, but they go and and wake up the others. And that is how um, chapter 10 ends. Sophie and Mez, you were talking about Princess and Curdie, uh, or, or the Princess and the Goblin, and, and more, um, more kind of echoes of that. What did you see there? 
I think Matt should elaborate on this because this is like her favorite, <laughs> her favorite thing. It is my favorite scene in The Princess and the Goblin, which is one of my, possibly my favorite McDonald's. Yeah, in The Princess and the Goblin, um, Irene is told by the great, 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 etc. grandmother to go and, and bring Curtie. And uh, of course, the grandmother knows that Curtie's not having any of it. He's a, he's a realist. He doesn't believe anything about, you know, magic addicts and great old grandmothers and all of the magic. And yet she is forced to, to obey, despite the fact that um, she gets a slap in the face of Curtie saying she's being childish and, and lying, essentially. And it's so painful, but Irene has to, to do the faithful thing and do what her grandmother has told her to do. Um, so this really feels like an echo of that as well, of Lucy having to go knowing the shame that she's about to bring down on herself, knowing she'll be resisted. And uh, yeah, it makes me wonder actually how much of this was personal for Lewis, because you see it kind of come up several times with Lucy kind of having to <laughs> having to take the shame of of speaking the truth. And you think about Lewis and his context of um, academia. And I can only imagine that, you know, there he is putting himself out there with all these apologetics books. And you wonder how difficult that was for him when he knew what the response would be from his his peers. Yeah, yeah, that's funny, because I never think of Lewis as being, I, I think of Lucy as being like the mystic, right? The one who sort of sees the things that nobody else see. And I think of Lewis as being so much more like Dr. Cornelius or something like that, right? Like just really um, more skeptical by nature. But I think, yeah, in relation to his community, his academic community, I, I imagine he must have felt like Lucy quite a quite a bit. There there were things that happened to him, even just by virtue of him reasoning reasoning them out, that he simply couldn't deny and, and wasn't interested in denying, even though he was very reluctant, right, to uh, to convert. Chapter 11, in which Lucy continues to forge ahead, follows Aslan, even though no one else wants to follow, and they have to follow Lucy, and um, Susan is kind of awful. They follow Lucy following Aslan over what seems to be a cliff, and once they get over it and realize it's not a cliff, um, that's the point at which they begin to see Aslan. It takes Susan and Trumpkin the longest to see Aslan, because Trumpkin, of course, is our materialist dwarf. He doesn't believe in magic and finally aslan kind of has a moment with each of them where he um, rebukes um, again it's a it's a very sort of socratic rebuke are just meant to restore i think as soon as they convict peter says i'm so sorry i i i was i was wrong about the direction to go i didn't listen to lucy i should have and all aslan says is my dear son uh, and for Susan, that's the harshest rebuke, which is, you have listened to Fear's child. So the only one who's not rebuked in any way this time around is Edmund, which is which is an interesting reversal to the last book. He's simply told, well done. Um, and that's an interesting, yeah, just, just kind of a fun reversal that Edmund is the one who comes through this time uh, because he was the one who was so very rotten in the, in the first book. Your thoughts on, on any of that? I think it's interesting comparing Lucy and Susan specifically because Lewis says that Susan was acting like such a grown-up. And so I think it's just a, an interesting comparison between a lot of times you have more of these skeptical grown-ups versus you have Lucy, who just is the epitome of a child with childlike like faith who just trusts. Edmund has figured out how to be on that path also, just to have that childlike trust 
of following someone even though he doesn't understand why specifically can't see Aslan himself. But this also plays in with education of how do you grow well? Do you grow up into a skeptical adult who squashes your imagination like so many of the Telmarines? Or do you grow to become someone like Dr. Cornelius? You know, like, do you grow up to be somebody who still has that childlike faith, even as they're maturing? And not to just drag McDonald into this again, but <laughs> I was just thinking of in Lilith, which is probably my favorite of his works, there are the little ones who are these little people and they're scared of growing up because they don't want to become like the, the bad giants um, and they don't want to become like them. But there's this wrestle with the little ones need education and they need to grow. And so I think Lewis is playing with a similar sort of theme of what is the right kind of education to bring maturity, but not to turn you into a grown up. Hmm. Hmm. And if I can just agree with you um, with, with some of the text where Aslan meets with Lucy and she says, you look bigger. And hmm. he says, child, the older you grow, the bigger I will seem. That's a slight paraphrase, but that <laughs> idea of when you're growing and your childlike faith is actually growing with you, it's, it's actually the vehicle by which you grow in wisdom. Then God only gets bigger. <laughs> he doesn't get smaller. So yeah, I think that is totally a major, a major theme. I echo everything that's everyone said. There's so many good points, but I think something that's an interesting element to this, and we see it throughout the book with other characters too, is this idea of bravery. Like Aslan's calling Lucy to be brave and the children all have sort of moments of bravery. Aslan's calling them to trust them through the fog, through the valleys, through the, even though they can't see them, like you have to trust. And it's the fact that Lucy has to go up and wake the other children and say, follow me. Like it's this way, trust me. If I was a child reading this book, like that's such an intimidating situation to be in like oh my gosh I have to wake up my older siblings and all this peer pressure on me and it's just that it's that childlike wonder and faith but it's also that very simple old-fashioned bravery this is what I'm believing and I'm just going to keep walking down this path no matter what people say or what people believe I'm going to keep following Aslan and we see here Lucy being called to that nightly attitude of all right Lucy you have to be brave but you also have to convince your brothers and sisters in a gentle way to follow you yeah I love that so much Absolutely. Lewis has a, a great essay on chivalry that maybe we'll try and link to where he discusses what you've just been saying, Logan. The whole idea of chivalry was so important to Lewis and to Tolkien. Obviously, Aslan is a mixture of brave and terrible and powerful, but also incredibly loving and gentle with the children. But even in like Lord of the Rings, you see that Aragorn. He's the king conqueror, but also the healer. Great medieval picture that I think all the, the Inklings love so much. They put those ideals throughout so many of their books. Yeah, it's funny. There's been there's been kind of a movement to explain knights as well they weren't really like that um and sir lancelot well you know they were they were basically just a bunch of brutes and so we have all this stuff show up in the literature in order to like try to tame them a little bit because they're so awful and i think to some extent you know i get that but it also does miss the point right this kind of literature would not have been popular if it didn't fit into a, a view of the world that they already would have found appealing that that even if there were knights who were doing awful things, which there were, this sort of ideal of a knight um, is, is it's it's not just propaganda um, and it's not just sort of empty. We want you to act this way instead of the way you're acting, you jerky knights. Rather, something that has a lot of traction for for medievals and something that they find that they can believe in. It's not just the Victorians who who did. I also want to say to Sophie and Mez's point about 
you know, growing up without growing up, right? In, in, the, in the negative sense of the term. I wonder if a lot more of this book than we think isn't about the redemption of Susan or, or the attempted redemption of Susan anyway, because there's so much play kind of in, at the end of this chapter when Bacchus appears, you know, and the two girls go with Aslan and Bacchus and they go on this like wild romp. And then we hear more about that romp in a, in a later chapter because it seems so out of left field and just weird. And the only thing that I can think is that like Lewis is like sticking it to Tolkien saying, ha ha, you know, fawns do belong in a children's book but yeah i wonder i wonder if that element of play isn't very natural based on sort of what what you all have been um discussing and, and sort of bringing up When they make it back to Aslan's How and they follow Aslan all the way back to where the stone table used to be, and now it's a big old mound, which is like a little bit like Barrows, not Barrows in Tolkien, sanctified Barrows in in England or like a sanctified version of those of those barrows uh, but they but they make it back to Aslan's how and suddenly there appears this army of trees also Bacchus and Selenus and Bacchus is like is it a is it a romp Aslan and Selenus you know very Fantasia like falls around on his mule and uh, is, is like clearly drunk and yelling refreshments refreshments it's just strange appearance of these two characters the, the crowd and the dance around Aslan, for it had become a dance once more, grew so thick and rapid that Lucy was confused. She never saw where certain other people came from, who were soon capering about among the trees. One was a youth, dressed only in a fawn skin, with vine leaves wreathed in his curly hair. His face would have been almost too pretty for a boy's if it had not looked so extremely wild. He felt, as Edmund said when he saw him a few days later, there's a chap who might do anything, absolutely anything. He seemed to have a great many names, Bromios, Basareus and the ram were three of them. There were a lot of girls with him as wild as he. There was even unexpectedly someone on a donkey, and everybody was laughing and everybody was shouting, Yuan, Yuan, yoyoyoyoy, which is the best I can do with the Greek. <laughs> is it a romp, Aslan? cried the youth, and apparently it was, but nearly everyone seemed to have a different idea as to what they were playing. It may have been Tig, but Lucy never discovered who was it. It was rather like blind man's buff, only everyone behaved as if they were blindfolded. It was not unlike Hunt the Slipper, but the slipper was never found. What made it more complicated was that the man on the donkey, who was old and enormously fat, began calling out at once, Refreshments! Time for refreshments! And falling off his donkey and being bundled onto it again by the others, while the donkey was under the impression that the whole thing was a circus and tried to give a display of walking on its hind legs. And all the time there were more and more vine leaves everywhere, and soon not only leaves but vines. They were climbing up everything. They were running up the legs of the tree people and circling round their necks. Lucy put up her hands to push back her hair and found she was pushing back vine branches. The donkey was a mass of them. His tail was completely entangled and something dark was nodding between his ears. Lucy looked again and saw it was a bunch of grapes. After that it was mostly grapes, overhead and underfoot and all around. Refreshments! Refreshments! roared the old man. Everyone began eating, and whatever hothouses your people may have, you have never tasted such grapes. Really good grapes, firm and tight on the outside, but bursting into cool sweetness when you put them in your mouth. Here there were more than anyone could possibly want, and no table manners at all. One saw sticky and stained fingers everywhere, and though mouths were full of laughter, never ceased, nor the yodeling cries of, Yon! Yon! Yo! 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 
till all of a sudden everyone felt at the same moment that the game, whatever it was, and the feast ought to be over, and everyone flopped down breathless on the ground and turned their faces to Aslan to hear what he would say next. At that moment the sun was just rising, and Lucy remembered something and whispered to Susan, I say, Sue, I know who they are. Who? The boy with the wild face is Bacchus, and the old one on the donkey is Selenus. Don't you remember Mr. Tumnus telling us about them long ago? Yes, of course, but I say, Lou. What? I wouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we'd met them without Aslan. I should think not, said Lucy. There's the end of the, uh, the end of that chapter. It seems like a good place to end the first installment of our second half of Prince Caspian, uh, since it mirrors the end of the second installment. But uh, but yeah, what do you all make of this? I think this scene is <laughs> is so much fun. I think it, it just feels so Lewis to bring pagan gods out of nowhere and, and throw them into the mix. But I love too, if, you know, when you read the myths about Bacchus or Dionysus when in the Greek myths, the man was crazy and, or the God was crazy. And you just had extreme, the, the parties weren't like parties like this, right? You have people being killed and all sorts of extreme wildness going on. I just keep saying extreme. Um, and so I like, I, I think it's cool how Lewis brings this under the reign of Aslan and what it looks like to see pagan gods and pagan mythology brought into its proper place, not sort of just thrown out, but what does it look like when the proper king is over it, which I think is cool. And it was making me think too, I've been rereading Dante uh, right now. And so seeing how there's sort of a long tradition of Christian authors taking these pagan themes and sort of co-opting them, bringing them in to, and fitting it really nicely into what the Christian story is and pulling all the pieces together. And so I, I love seeing how Lewis is following that same tradition. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it really is very consistent. I mean, there there probably was some banter going on with Tolkien regarding this because we all know Tolkien's feelings um, about Father Christmas and Bacchus just appearing out of thin air. But I think it is consistent with with um, Lewis's way of seeing the great myth, and I think it's in is theology, poetry, when he talks about paganism is better off for Christianity, that it sort of uh, comes to its consummation in Christianity. And I feel like this is just a depiction of that, of that theory, really. And like Sophie said, you know, the Bacchanali are, are a nasty bunch <laughs> in, in mythology. They're totally destructive. And yet when you see them coming into that submission, suddenly it's that redemption, not just consummation, but redemption of, of the pagan myths, all that is beautiful and good kind of coming into this beautiful party um, that Logan was talking about. So yeah, I think Tolkien can't have complained too much because, um, you know, that's the way, that's the way Lewis came to Christianity in the first place. Yeah. Thanks to Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with what Sophie and Mez are talking about. It's such a consistent view with other works of C.S. Lewis too. And again, it fits so nicely with the revival of the tree spirits, the revival of the water spirits, the revival of the animals uh, if nature itself is not just this plain sort of ex experience that we see in our world it's super nature it's it's this more intelligent more vibrant more alive revival of creation and it fits so beautifully into that christian idea of christ isn't just redeeming us he's redeeming the world through us and he's you know the holy spirit is 
it will make all things new. Again, I don't want to keep bringing up the space trilogy, but I love the space trilogy. As we're in this conversation, it reminds me so much of that scene in that hideous strength again, when the gods sort of come through and exist on the house, sort of land on Ransom and the protagonist team. And these average middle-aged English people sort of hanging out in the kitchen. They have these big swelling moments of dance and wittiness and joy and laughter and music. Suddenly people can play instruments that they've never played before. It's just that picture of C.S. Lewis taking nature and old mythology and the old gods, small g, and every element under the sun and placing it under Aslan, placing it under the sun in a way, and allowing it to shine and reflect back to Christ and reflect back to Aslan. It's it's so awesome. I, I love that. It really does stroke your imagination as a reader and make you wonder like, well, what else could be redeemed? Like what else in the world or in creation and literature, what else can be stoked and made alive through the Christian story? Yeah, man, there's so much there in, in what all of you have said. I, I think all of that is absolutely true. I still think he's thumbing his nose at Tolkien just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> because, because that's in in the letters where uh, Tolkien's writing. Ah, I forget who he's writing. But yeah, he objected specifically to the part in Tumnus's house when he read, I mean to say, nymphs and their ways, the love life of a fawn. Doesn't he know what he's on about? Another, another kind of complaint that he had about Narnia was that like, well, you know, I've kind of written stuff that's sort of like this, and uh, it's it's kind of weird to read good friend who's an author writing stuff that's kind of like your stuff. And I'm sure, you know, it's not like he took anything or anything, but it's just a bit weird. And like, so Lewis, including this part, having an actual like Christian Bacchanal where they, where they eat grapes and then like ants essentially like coming, coming in as well. It reminds me, I don't know, this may be a really weird stretch, so please forgive me. We can edit this out if it doesn't make sense. But if Tolkien was a kid playing with Legos, he would follow the Legos exactly to the instructions. If C.S. Lewis was a kid playing with Legos, he would make whatever he wants, not obeying any kind of rules of the mythology or of, that doesn't belong here. What is that? That's a brick from a different set. Like, what is that? They both make something beautiful, but one sticking to the instructions, one sticking very strictly to the quote unquote rules. And the other ones, he's sort of freewheeling it a little bit more. And they both create beautiful creations. But yeah, they're both very different Lego masters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think like even like Tolkien would figure out what the principles were that inspired the original like Lego designers, you know, and 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 like extend those after much careful thought and experimentation with putting just the right Lego in. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Tolkien and, is inventing new Lego blocks. He's making yeah. his own Lego blocks and he's made a long 2000 year old history of all Legos of all time and lewis is over here just pulling all the different sets together and making it this beautiful yeah. uh, set as well so yeah it, it's i don't know if that allegory works but it helps me understand these two different builders of legos but instead of lego bricks it's mythology yeah. and history i think that, I think that uh, works very well hits the spot oh, perfect yeah everything is awesome everything is cool when you're part of a team Everything is awesome when we're living dream. Yeah, Narnia is very much a grafted world, right? It's a it's a world that takes parts of all of these different mythologies, right, and unites them under humans and ultimately under Aslan. It's a world that would not exist without the human world um, because it's it's so sort of dependent on 
the human world in a, in, in a way, right? They, they need sons of Adam and daughters of Eve to be their kings, right? Um, and so with that, you have any human mythology being a candidate for... It's, it's fair game, yeah. Being you're, real. And, yeah, and, absolutely. And Narnia. Uh, but yeah. You mentioned it last on the last episode of how Lewis didn't really know what to do with Narnia until he came across Aslan. And now that we sort of think about it, of course, because Aslan is his base. He can literally pull in from everywhere as long as he aligns it underneath Aslan and as supporting us. And he can pull in from Norse mythology and, you know... Uh, ancient mythology and Greek mythology. And so, yeah, it, it makes sense why it all clicked for Lewis when he found Aslan. Yeah, and I think um, this absolutely fits with uh, with Sophie's point is Lewis kind of being in this tradition, this medieval tradition of Dante, right? The medievals are not interested in, um, if something's in the book, they're going to try to fit it into their system. And so it doesn't matter if these things are like seem fundamentally opposed. They're going to try to find some way to harmonize them um, because it makes the cathedral that much more innate. Right. And, and, and kind of kind of beautiful and stunning and, and awe inspiring. Right. And that's that's absolutely the way that Lewis seems to be creating here. All right, so I want to know from you all, is there a mythology that is not in Narnia that you think could be fit in to Narnia? Could, could we do this to Aztec mythology, for example? It's got a lot of human sacrifice, right? Um, or or is, is, is it possible to redeem these kinds of, what we, what we kind of think of as like being slightly scarier mythologies? I mean, there's always sort yeah. of the animation, animation of nature. I'm mm -hmm. thinking of Native American mythology. Yeah, yeah. Or even Chinese mythology. Chinese. There's, I think, in Chinese mythology, there's a lot that you could you could work with and make a really cool story out of. Yeah. I'm surprised actually that Lewis didn't tie in more explicitly more Norse mythology. It feels mm -hmm. like it's heavy on the Greek because I get the sense that Norse is his bag. Yeah, I wonder if he wasn't trying to tiptoe around Tolkien hmm. a little bit, even as he was thumbing his nose at him, um, <laughs> because Tolkien definitely is drawing on the Norse left, right, and center. You've got nod to Fenris Ulf in the next chapter. You've got dwarves, right? Um, true, true. No elves. You have um, the dark and the light dwarf. Yeah, yeah. And you've got giants. And I don't know if I can think of any other. There's kind of a world encircling serpent in... Uh, kind of in the voyage of the dawn treader not really it's just a sea monster uh yeah there i i also get like a celtic vibe from a lot of the tree stuff and i'm mm. not sure if that's justified yeah. yeah i was thinking sort of the green of the green man as well yeah. um and a lot of sort of celtic uh nature spirits as well i think you're right about that All right. Well, sorry for the ridiculous question um, at, at the end. I try to I try to find like just an absurd question. Logan and Sophie and Mez, thank you all so much for joining us. Listeners, tune in for next part of, of Prince Caspian. Thanks for going along on this crazy Aslan following Bacchanal. Bye.
blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the Geeson fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>